Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall not strike you, rather, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time on and forevermore. It was two and a half, uh, almost three years ago to this, uh, to this month that I was sitting right here in the sanctuary and I was sitting here by myself going, I'm wondering if the Lord is calling me to stay in ministry. Because I wasn't feeling it anymore. I didn't want to deal with it anymore. Being a pastor is very difficult, and it's not something you can teach in college, but it's very hard. And I remember praying, Lord, will you release me from my calling? I don't know if you've ever done that. You have, you have a real strong calling in the ministry, but you realize the suffering that's going to take to stay in the ministry is far more or less than being getting out of the ministry. And so I prayed, take this cup. Take this calling away from me. And I negotiated with the Lord and said, I've been doing this for 35 years. This is enough. This is long enough. But this is where the Lord told me, restored in order to restore, that I need to restore you in order for you to restore others. And I looked on how much it would cost me emotionally to be restored, and I go, that is a lot of suffering. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of bitterness. There's a lot of stuff that's not honoring God. And so when I took this road to being restored, it was difficult. And it's very difficult for a lot of us. But it's very fascinating because in those two years, then I've taken the church into what's called restored in order to restore. And this month is, we're up to a year of restoring the people in this church. Two years. God told me two years for me, two years for the church, two years for the facility. And so we're one year into it. And I remember now that, man, I suffer because not only that watching you guys going through restoration when it comes to emotional healthy relationship class or when it comes to the grace track, it's putting you through a lot of stuff too. And as a pastor, you want to save you from that pain. And so I'm telling you how much emotional pain that I'm going through, how it affects you physically. I was sitting there going, man, my tooth is killing me. And I was thinking, Oh my goodness, I have to get another root canal. It's just, I have a whole job, new teeth as it is, but I don't understand how I'm going to have this root canal. So I went to the dentist on Monday, last Monday. And I was going, uh, you know, <laughs> over-dramatizing because I don't handle pain very well. So I go, can you take an x-ray of my mouth here because it's killing me. So she took an x-ray and she showed me and she goes, there's nothing wrong. In fact, your teeth are clean. In fact, you know, let's clean them anyway. So she did a teeth cleaning. She called it TMJ, 
You ever do that? TMJ is a locked jaw that causes, is caused by stress. And so there I go, I'm very stressed. She goes, yeah, you need to calm down. And I go, how in the world do you calm down? I'm stressing out because I love this church so much. And so she goes, you just need to relax. It'll go away. And this is what she said, in a month or so. I go, no, I'm not waiting a month. So I went to urgent care. And I said, my jaw, and this, this is how it was on Friday. My jaw is hurting me, and it really hurts, and I have to speak on Sunday. You go, you sound like that all the time, Kevin. <laughs> That's fine. No, thank you for the ones that have hearts. So they gave me, he said, look, I'm going to give you 800 milligrams of ibuprofen, but I'm going to give you this to relax the muscle, but I'm going to give you this. <laughs> and this one, this medication, you know it's good when you have to sign for it and you have to show your ID. You know that's strong stuff. And so on Friday, I go, shoot, I'll take it. So I took the 800 milligrams, I took the other pill, and I took the other pill. Boom, boom, boom. Because I have no self-control and I don't like pain. Ooh, I was loopy. In fact, the, one of them says, if you take it, do not drive. Whereas a pastor, if you take it, do not preach. Because you're not going to make any sense. And so now, I loosened up a little. Now, there's good suffering and there's bad suffering. I, I want to show you this. Because I've noticed this. The more suffering that I go through, the more I love. And the less I love, the less suffering I go through. And what's fascinating to me, that when I was young, I used to wear a t-shirt that said I could care less. And the reason I wore it is because caring hurt. Love hurts. The deeper you love somebody, the deeper you love a church, the deeper you love people, the more hurt you go through, right? And so when you love deeply, you hurt deeply. And so this is where you can't avoid the pain. I put this on the screen. There's what we call legitimate suffering. And legitimate suffering is what I had to go through to uh, restore it in order to restore. It was legitimate. And what you're going through, if you've taken Grace Track, or if you've taken the Emotional Healthy Relationship class, and you're suffering, it's legit. Because you go through tremendous amounts of suffering before you see a breakthrough. And there's a tremendous breakthrough that a lot of us are about to see in our own lives. But in the midst, it can kill you. It can destroy you. And so this is what I thought the psychologist Carl Jung said. He said uh, neurosis, neurosis is always a substitute for legitimate suffering. And the psychologists don't use this term neurosis much, but neurosis is caused by anxiety or depression, and it's, it's kind of a mental illness in itself. But it's really the fear and avoidance. Like when I wanted to quit three years ago, I wanted to avoid this. I didn't want to deal with this pain in my, myself. I didn't want to deal with this. I want to go off to an island somewhere and just pretend nothing, everything is perfect instead of dealing with some real hurt in my life. In fact, if you look on the screen, in other words, the attempt avoidance of legitimate is necessary suffering that comes with being, being human leads to unnecessary suffering. So me trying to avoid suffering will lead me into more suffering. You know that. When, when you don't want to deal with something, 
And then it just leads to more suffering. You just postponed it. In fact, if you, if you look, we're, we're talking about um, uh, Jonah. And it was interesting because Jonah was, was a person that really tried to keep control. And so when God told him, I want you to go to Nineveh, basically he didn't want to deal with his own self. He hated the Ninevites. He hated, he, he had a prejudice against those people. So instead of dealing with his own pain, he decided to run away from his own pain. And he said, no, I'm going in the totally opposite direction. And what happened, he ended up suffering ten times more than if he just dealt with his own self. And so this is where I left you last week when it came to uh, Jonah saying, throw me overboard, I want to die. It says this. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Meanwhile, the Lord provided great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. And Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me from the belly of the underworld. I cried out for help, and you have heard my voice. So basically, Jonah wanted to die. He didn't want to deal with his own issue. He'd just rather die. But it's interesting to me, I'm thinking, why didn't God just pick him up right out of the boat, fly him over like Superman, and drop him into Nineveh? Why didn't he do this? But no, he allows him to jump, be thrown overboard, and he wants to die, but then God sends a fish. This is the worst way to die, don't you think? I mean, think about it. Have you ever had some burp right in front of you? And you go, oh, seriously, man, good night, brush your teeth. Am I the only one that have that? <laughs> okay. And you just, can you imagine being in the belly of a fish, how that it would smell? And I don't like going fishing at all. My dad took me fishing when I was seven. I never went fishing since. I don't know, I have daddy issues, whatever it may be. I hate the sign of fish. I hate eating fish. I hate how fish feel. Imagine you are in a fish, and that fish is probably eating other fish. There's no way in the world I would survive on this. And so look on the screen. Jonah did what a lot of people do when they realize their attempts to avoid necessary suffering through their own controlling behavior has led them into a worse unnecessary suffering. Jonah finally cried out and asked for God for help. You, know, you notice you do that when you ask for God for help from God, so was that your last moment? I've tried everything else, and I'm going to try God now? You notice that? I don't get it. It should be your first thing, but we wait until the last thing. In fact, if the psalmist, uh, we had someone read the psalmist, I want you to read this. I want you to look at this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? My help will come from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So his eyes were focused on himself. I can figure this out. I can do this, like a lot of us. But then the psalmist said, my eyes need to be focused on the above. My God. You know, somebody told me that I've noticed that basically I have white spiritual privilege. Never heard of that one, did you? Think about this. Because when I was a missionary, when I was doing Sudan, man, those people in Sudan really knew how to trust God for everything. 
But when I have white American privilege, I have tendency to depend on my own resources rather than God. You see what I mean? And so when we do this, when my, my walk watching the Sudanese people, man, there was a miracle after miracle in those people's lives because all they had was God. They depended on God for their daily bread. They depended on God for everything because they had no resources what we Americans have. And so this is hard because if you look at the psalmist, this is a very mature statement and very wise statement. And so instead of, uh, when I stop looking at my own resources, it requires a spirit of humility. We in America have a pride problem. Entitlement problem. We really do. And so therefore to totally depend on the Lord requires the spirit of humility within us and for pride to leave. In fact, back on the screen, a wise person will have figured out probably through a lot of failure and unnecessary suffering to look to God for help in times of trouble. Jesus himself, who was baptized, we had the privilege of doing a baptism last week, he was thrown in the wilderness to be tested. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, 1 through 2, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, this is neat, because full of the Holy Spirit, when you, you imagine being full of the Holy Spirit, you imagine like life is chilled. I'm full of the Holy Spirit. Everything's going well. Not for Jesus. Because follow me. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where the 40 days he was tempted by the devil. How in the world does that work? I'm struggling with my walk with God, and I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, and I'm going through the suffering. So they kind of go together. This has happened right after his own baptism. After God said, this is my son who I'm well pleased. Boom, we went through 40 days of this crazy suffering. Follow me on the screen. In our baptism, we repent, trust, and follow Christ, and our name, a beloved child of God, which is our true identity. After our baptism, that commitment and true identity will be challenged. That is called spiritual warfare. Jesus provided a great example of how to respond to spiritual warfare. Jesus did not rely on his own coping mechanisms. Jesus did not rely on his own rationality. He used the powerful spiritual weapon against devil's spiritual weapon. His battle was here. wasn't uh, within the flesh to defeat and overcome the, overcome the devil. Look on the screen. The most powerful spiritual weapon in overcoming the forces of evil is to agree what God says about you and what is true. Says about what is true. That requires humility. This is why when we face the mighty mountain in our, in our lives, that the best position we're in is on our knees, surrendering ourselves to God, saying, God, I don't know what's going on. I can't figure this out. And that's a good position to be in because you have to then depend on the movement of the Holy Spirit in your life. And I had to get to the point in my life when I realized, okay, I'm relying on my own resources of 38 years of wisdom that I've had in pastoring instead of daily praying and daily depending on the Holy Spirit at this time. Look at Matthew chapter 4. The tempter came to him. And this is where it's crazy. 
Because basically he challenged him with his, his identity. Remember, he said, God said, you are my blessed son whom I won't please. And I've noticed that when we baptize someone, this is, if I told you this, you are God's beloved child whom he's well pleased. 95% of you don't accept it. I'm t I guarantee it. Because when I tell people in counseling, they go, why is that so hard to grasp? But look at the first thing the devil challenges him. The tempter came up to, came and said to him, if, the two-letter word there, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. You see the little manipulation there? He challenged Jesus on what Jesus heard his identity was God. He challenged his own identity. This is why we struggle with it. And he said, if you are the son of God, sneaky devil, he introduced doubt. This is a lot of things. Because the Lord has put some things on your heart. has given you dreams. has given you visions in your life. But the, what stops it is doubt. I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can do it. And you know what? Doubt stops. It just moves. So this two years of restoration for me, that was the easy one. The two years of restoration in the church, it's getting tougher. The two years after that, a restoration of the campus, that's going to be hell. And I'm going, man, that, I'm doubting that already, how that God has given me this vision, how I'm going to do this. Because frankly, we're looking at a two and a half to three million dollar project. And it's coming up. Restoration of this whole uh, chapel and building a two-story building right there with uh, new nurseries, fellowship hall, the whole thing, and new offices. <laughs> That's scary stuff. But when we doubt it, we don't do anything about it. Look on the screen. If you are not God's beloved son, then you are really on your own. Therefore, misuse your own power to satisfy your personal needs. It is interesting that the Lord's Prayer, the first request he teaches us is to make is for our daily bread, the food we need to survive. This is a recon recognition that I am God's beloved child, and therefore God is the source of my daily provision. I am not. So what happens here? What weapons does Jesus use to win the battle of identity? He uses this. And he uses the word of God. Verse 4, it's on the screen. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. <coughs> Doubt was not an option for Jesus. His identity was not a question. Jesus agreed, and it's on the screen, with God's version of reality rather than the devil twisted distortion of it. For Jesus, food alone was not enough. Food alone was not enough. He had to agree with every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the most basic word that came from the mouth of God about him was that he was God's beloved son. Jesus therefore teaches us that to win the identity battle, we must agree with what God says about who we truly are. You're, you are your worst enemy. You really are. When you're sitting at home going, I should, I'm terrible, I'm this, I'm that, if I haven't done this, this, I deserve this, and all this stuff. Stop it. You are a child of God. You are a child of God. 
And so therefore, your whole identity needs to be from God. Let's look at the second battle. And I call this the validation battle. <laughs> this is another one your pastor struggles with because he wants everyone to love him. Can you validate me, please? Because I need validation. So I would do everything for your validation. Well, it compromises what the Lord wants me to do. Validation's hard. And that's the second battle and about the devil's strategy for Jesus to seek validation. This is what he's trying to get Jesus to seek validation. Look at verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on a pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you on on their hands, and they will bear up, bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against stone. Basically, he says, dude, if you come down like Superman, validation all over the place. You're going to get it. And the thought, he goes, okay. Because you notice when you get validation from your boss or validation from someone at church or someone at work, that validation can go just as fast as it comes. You notice that? You go, you're the best employee of the world. Hey, thank you, man. You really saved us. And then the following week, it's a whole nother thing. That's probably how Reuben and Brooke feel. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens to us. <laughs> you know? And so this is where that everyone, he's talking about, we need to seek validation from other things. And so watch in verse 7. Again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is what Jesus said on the screen. Jesus rejected the devil's lies about the need to seek validation. Jesus agreed with, with the fact that God had not only declared him to be a beloved son, but also declared that God was well pleased with him. And what God says about Jesus is also true for us. When God created us, God declared that we are supremely good and in us, he is well pleased. We do not need to seek validation from others because God has already validated you. You know how much emotional energy is to seek validation? All of a sudden, you're at work, you're one way. At church, you're another way. At home, you're another way. All seeking validation. We don't need to do that. It's too much energy here. Back on the screen. We think God is in the business of using power to validate our egos. When we involve God in trying to put a stamp of approval on our egotistical games, it never works out. God's power does not serve the ego. It functions in the service of love. This is where we get messed up. And so we look at the final battle that was fought against the devil, and that's a battle of what we call the worship battle. To understand this, we have to have a basic definition of worship. Here's the basic definition. It's on the screen. Worship, to ascribe worth or worship, and to regard with the highest respect and honor or devotion. Let's simplify it. Back on the screen. There really are only two things we can worship. We can either worship God or ourselves. Our basic temptation of the devil is to replace the worship which rightly belongs to God with self-worship. And that's what the devil tries to do with Jesus, 
with Jesus. Take a look again, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high place in the mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and, and their splendor, and said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So he's trying to play, play a game with him. And you might say, wait a minute, Kevin. Doesn't we struggle with not worshiping the devil, but worshiping ourselves? Because when we worship the devil, it's like we have a pentagram put on our chest and all this stuff and we drink blood. But the thing is, Satan's strategy is not really him getting you to worship him. It's getting you to stop worshiping God. And, and so if we can worship ourselves and depend on ourselves fully, and I can get myself out of this, I can do that, I can do that, then we end up worshiping ourselves. And we've got to be very careful with that. Because God will allow it. Go. It's up to you. You can worship me or worship yourself. And so here's the answer that I'm looking on the screen. Satan gets us to bow down to him by bowing to ourselves and the demands of the ego. Here, Satan is ultimately trying to get Jesus to serve himself rather than obey God's Father's will. This is interesting because this is a tough one all of us struggle with. In fact, Dallas Willard says this, Underneath is all the radical evil of a human heart, a heart that would make me God in place of God. This is where a core worship battle, what we struggle with. Because when I get mad, when I get frustrated, when I get pissed, it's about me, right? It's about my anger. It's about my things. And so therefore, when the ego kind of removes out of a marriage, out of a relationship, out of a church, you will watch the unifying power work together in the spirit of the Lord when we get our egos out. It's not about us, but it's about the Lord. And so, back on the screen, is a battle over who gets to sit on the throne of our hearts. Will it be me, or will it be God? This is hard, because this is a daily battle that your pastor struggles with. Because I can guarantee you, I was on the throne three years ago. I was on the throne of my own. And that's why I was discouraged. I had to move myself off the throne and put God back on the throne. Jesus had the decisive win in the worship battle. Look at here. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Who needs to be on their, your throne? God. Whatever you're facing, whatever you're dealing with right now, who's on the throne? Are you trying to figure this out? Or are you going to allow God to try to figure it out? Because here's the problem. When you're going, we trust God for about a week, right? And then we go, this is way too long. God's working. You just don't see it. God's moving. You don't see it. But what happens, you go, okay, I'm going to take it over, and I'm going to say, move God off the throne. I'm going to sit on the throne, and I'm going to say, this is what needs to be done because I'm right and everyone's wrong, and my ego gets puffed up because I'm hurt and I'm discouraged. And then you just took over. Then you're in the belly of a well, and you're going, geez, just be obedient. Keep God on the throne. Stop running away from him. 
James chapter 4, verse 6 through 7 says, But he gives us all the more grace. Grace track. Therefore, <laughs> therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So in grace track, if you embrace grace, it's through your spirit of humility, not through your pride. See? You know, uh, Brooke wrote, Brooke wrote Grace Track, so if you have problems with him, he's on his own throne. He wrote it. <laughs> no. Grace Track would challenge the bejeevers out of you. It would, it would just challenge you in every aspect of who you are. And then if you can survive that, go to the emotional, healthy relationship. You ask the people that have gone through that class, that is a tough class. And it's a tough class. And we've had people walk out of that class and then come back to the class. I mean, it's just a crazy class. You ask Dana, you ask Renee, you ask Martin, you ask Maria how that class was. They'll be honest with you. That's a tough class. But it challenges us to get off the throne and to trust him. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do you see what I mean? And so we all go through these trials. We all go through hardship. We all go through this. But it's necessary suffering. It's, in order to be transformed and to be changed, we will go through some Back on the screen. When we, like Jonah, find ourselves in the belly of a beast, it is an opportunity to learn humility. It's an opportunity to let go of the way we want to define ourselves and to allow God to define us. It's an opportunity to stop feeding the ego with attempts of validation and to be content in the knowledge of God's validation of us is enough. But most of all, it is an opportunity to dethrone our egos and put God back in the rightful place of being the only God to which we will bow. So, what is being in the belly of the beast about? How can this suffering, because many of us are in the belly of the beast now. Many of us run away from ourselves and now we're in a situation that we're stuck into. We can't figure this out. The Apostle Paul gives us the way out of the belly of the beast. It says in Romans chapter 5, follow me. We have peace. This is what we want. This is what you want. With God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this, I'm sorry, grace, in which we stand. And when we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God, and not only that, we are also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. That's some crazy stuff. So three years ago when I'm debating, oh, I don't want to go through the suffering. If I chose not to, I would be in a whole deep load of suffering. More so than I would if I chose to get myself off the throne and put God on the throne. The spirit of humility, I guarantee you, will alleviate a lot of unnecessary suffering. 
back on the screen. Our suffering in the belly of the beast is meant to be a love, be a love education. It's meant to empty us out of ourselves so we can be filled with God's love through being humble and learning to let go, let God to be God. We grow in our capacity to love as God loves. Closing illustration. I'm off the meds today. I'm going to go back on it when I get home. <laughs> but here's the thing I want, I want to share with you. When I, dealing with church, what I did two weeks ago, I pushed God off the throne and tried to fix it myself. And therefore the stress became magnified into my body. That's what happens. That's what happens. And so I need to allow God to do what he was doing and not get in the way of God. Because God will step back and go, okay. And then I'm going, I lift my eyes up to the Lord. I cannot do this. And he goes, okay, let me start it again. I went through unnecessary suffering the last week that manifested in my body. Keep God on the throne even when it's going rough, even when it's going difficult. Because I'm telling you right now, the hope, the endurance, the character that he's building because you're in the belly of the well, you will see God do tremendous miracles in your life when you get off your own throne. May God bless you. May God bless you.